They do not come into our classes with their disabilities sharpied on their foreheads. That's today's guest, Virginia Music Educator of the Year, Alice Hamill, challenging us to look at the student, not their labels. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Dr. Alice Hamill is on faculty at James Madison University and is an internationally recognized scholar in the area of students with special needs. She is co-author of four texts on teaching music to students with special needs and has published widely in music, arts, special, and general education journals. She was Virginia's Outstanding Music Educator of the Year in 2018 and is currently president-elect of the Virginia Music Educators Association. Find Alice's full bio, show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. What was the high point for you in this interview, Alan? Well, there was a lot. Um, I like the adopting the philosophy of deliberately recruiting students with special needs because it's right, because students without special needs learn more when alongside those other students. What about you, Steve? You're right. There was a lot. I felt like every sentence from Alice was an aha moment, and it forced me to ask myself some difficult questions about my own teaching and philosophy. I wanted tips and tricks, and she gave plenty, but more importantly, she helped me understand that perhaps the most important trick is my own point of view. This one is probably worth two listens, folks. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And we like those quick hits on this podcast, too, like uh, how not to label classrooms how to better define least restrictive environment, how to logistically and legally prepare for inclusive contest performance experiences. There's a lot here. Let's get to it. Alice Hamill, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. What drew you to the field of special needs students and their inclusion in school music programs? I grew up in a very small town in South Central Florida. My parents were pediatricians and were the only people in probably a hundred mile area who accepted um, Medicaid families and children. So they got all of the children with disabilities, everybody who was different. And I got to see a lot of kids that I didn't go to school with because at that time they really weren't included in our public schools that we had in Florida. So I got to ask lots of questions and read lots of books and learn as much as I could. And I've just always been more interested in A-sharp than B-flat. Well, let's uh, dig right into some terminology. What do you think we need to know? This can include important words that we should know. Uh, I'm curious if you hear words misused commonly, or especially if there are some words that you hear and cringe and think, yeah, we do not need to be using those words. What should we know? First place right now, there's a whole thing going on about person first language or identity first language. And the law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, says that we are to refer to people with disabilities in a person-first way. For example, we'd say, I am a person with autism. Identity first, it's a movement among disability rights activists. Some people feel that they want to be identified by their disability. So instead of saying, I'm a person with autism, they would say, I'm autistic. So that's caused some kind of kerfuffles among people as to what to do. What I do, what works for me, is I always start with person first. So I see Steve. Steve is a person who has a disability. And until Steve or someone with him says, no, Steve prefers to be identified as disabled. So then to be, okay, this is Steve. He's disabled. So I think honoring the person and who they are is really important. 
And so as part of that, when they tell you how they want to be identified, it's just like pronouns, right? When they tell you how they want to be identified, listen to them and do it. I'll date myself. I went to undergraduate teacher preparation training in the 1990s. And at that time, the name of the class we took was Mainstreaming the Exceptional Child. And I'm starting to discover over the last 10 years that a lot of what I learned in that class, the words we don't use anymore. Is there anything along those lines maybe for some people who took their exceptional persons training courses 15, 20, 30 years ago that they in particular would benefit from knowing some changes? First place, you're very young. (laughs) Um, When I was going to school, let's see. So thinking about that, well, of course we know we should never use the R word, which I don't even want to even use as an example. A lot of times people still use words like handicapped, which is not a word that we really use anymore. Of course, then some people say ADD and ADD hasn't existed since 1994. So yeah, there's a lot. What I do and my whole focus is on less on labels and more on people, which I think really helps here as well. I have my students think about the domains that are affected by students. So cognition, communication, sensory, physical, medical, those things, instead of focusing on specific disabilities, because you're right, Steve, they change. Every DSM changes what we call things. For example, according to the DSM, Asperger's is no longer a disability. Well, the Asperger's community has something to say about that. Um, so I try to stay, stay away from those things. I think one way to stay current is just to stay away from it and just talk about differences and you know what the student brings to the classroom rather than focusing on specific labels. So what are some like really common specific labels that people use that they ought not? You mentioned handicapped, the R word. Are there some others that we should, that they're just really well-meaning, but we need to avoid? Well, ADD doesn't exist. I think when we talk about rooms and where children go, I think is sometimes where we get in trouble, right? So, so here's the severe room. Here's the moderate room. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in a room that says severe. Autism now, we generally refer to it as autism spectrum disorders. So ASD instead of just autism, because we broadened that with the DSM-5 and brought in some other ancillary disabilities to kind of show and strengthen how long that autism spectrum really is. We don't use the R word. So we talk about cognition, right? Some of us have slower cognition or faster cognition. That's a great point. I think back to some of the IEP meetings that I sat in on, really the label didn't matter. It was what the student needed. And the label wasn't really going to help one way or another when we were talking about what was going to help the student the most in that learning environment. Totally. Yeah. They do not come into our classes with their disabilities sharpied on their foreheads. So it really, and often in the IEPs, the disability isn't even listed. I'd like to think that most of our music educators want to do what's best for all students, but let's, for the sake of argument, say you meet a music teacher who needs some convincing. This teacher worries that including special needs students might make the final product sound less refined, or perhaps it will take away from the experience of the other students. Where do we start that conversation? Well, they're absolutely right. I mean, yes, 
when the norms were created, when many of those recordings were made that we all listen to, right? And we all want our bands or orchestras or choirs to sound like this. No, there are not people with moderate disabilities in those groups. So it's true. I think we're, we're kind of at a crossroads in music education with this because the way we were taught, right? In all of our models, that's how you're going to get to Midwest, which really in our profession, starting from when we are in middle, in middle and high school ourselves, right? Through our university experiences, that's what you're shooting for, right? One day I'm going to have a band do this and we're going to, you know, it's more difficult to do that when you have people who are not neurotypical in your group. So it comes down kind of to a philosophy because we all say, oh yeah, music is for everyone, but is it? <laughs> is it really? I believe that with appropriate adaptations and modifications, like for example, modifying student parts, right? Just give them the baseline, have them play the first note of every measure, you know, have them, you know, outline the chords, you know, those things, you know, just a whole separate part. You can include kids with disabilities who aren't quite ready to play that grade four, five, six kind of stuff. It is true then when you go to festival, right? And you go to play for people, you can include that extra part in with your score and say, I have a student with a disability. This is their part in case you hear something different. Because actually, you're not legally following the IEP if you ask them to play that part, right? That's not written for them. I think in the end, everybody has to kind of decide this for themselves. One thing I think is really important is that I think that kids who are going to then major in music, it's important for them to have a place where they can be challenged, where they can play, right? Everybody deserves to sing in the magical group. Everybody deserves to play in the uh, symphonic wind ensemble. Everybody deserves, you know, we, we deserve to have those experiences, but we also have to have a place for kids with disabilities. You mentioned the legality of needing to rewrite that part as a part of somebody's IEP. Can you comment on the legality copyright-wise of changing something from the original score? Is that an acceptable use? Absolutely. It is acceptable use of copyright because, right. And, and you're just doing that one little part with those notes for that specific student. You're not changing it for everyone and you're not selling it and you're not reproducing it. So it's, yeah, it's fair use, Alan. Great question. And what about benefits to students who maybe don't have exceptional needs? What are the benefits to them for trying to make music for everybody? I believe that school is a microcosm of life and what students experience when they're growing up in those first 17, 18 years affects them forever. And I think if we all think about it, we are all still partially conditioned from what, what we experienced when we were kids. And I think it's important for kids to experience inclusion, to kind of really understand that music is for everybody, that everybody can do it so that we don't yet raise another one, two, three generations of students who, who will just look at me, music ed students. And I said, well, when's the last time you had a kid with disabilities in your music class? Fifth grade. So continuing along that, most teacher preparation programs incorporate exceptional learner training that emphasizes least restrictive environment possible. So what should teachers, parents, administrators all consider as they determine what exactly that least restrictive environment should look like in a musical setting? That's a great question. As music teachers, we kind of, we're among the last to really understand what least restrictive environment is. Least restrictive environment is not your regular classroom. It's not your fifth period choir. Least restrictive environment is specific to every student. So least restrictive environment is the setting where the student learns best. Some students learn best in that big classroom with lots of other kids. Some students learn best in a smaller classroom. Some students learn best in a classroom by themselves. 
I have a friend and he has autism and his least restrictive environment is a residential setting that's like a hospital where he lives 365 days a year. He does his school there. He does his play there. His parents come to visit him there, but he doesn't go home. That's his least restrictive environment. And I'm telling you, my friend is so happy there. He is the happiest he has ever been. And he's learning and he's meeting his goals. So I think we need to understand that when somebody says, oh, well, that's least restrictive environment. That's not necessarily true. So let's say we're in a a large school and we maybe have a new student who the special education teachers don't really know their needs very well yet. We're trying to get everything figured out, but they don't know. Yes, we need this student to be in a smaller class or one on one setting or whatever. Do we start with the assumption that they should be participating in in the large group and then go from there? Where do we start when we have very little information to go on? I look at their report cards and things from their previous school. So to see like what kinds of classes were they in before? So for example, if we're thinking about band again, um, so if that student was in, you know, in regular concert band, then that student will go in concert band and we'll just kind of observe and see what happens. This can sometimes be frustrating for teachers because the process moves so slowly. You know, when you think, okay, you've got this 180 days to do this case study, 180 school days, that's a year. (laughs) So sometimes it can, it can move very quickly. And then teachers, right, they get frustrated because they don't have the support that they need. So I think taking data, like go ahead, that student's in your class, that's great, take data and be in really frequent contact with the special education team to, you know, to let them know. So they might ask, you know, well, how's Alan doing? And so to have a lot of data about what's going on and whether this may or may not be the least restrictive environment. In my experience, our elementary and general music teachers uh, tend to be doing a better job of including students with special needs. I'm curious if you have recommendations specific to secondary performance-based groups. Any ideas that are specifically for band teachers or specifically orchestra or middle school, high school choir? Yeah, because it's a whole different thing, right? Because when students with disabilities became, you know, just came kind of came, it felt like flooding into the classroom in the late 70s and the 80s. No teacher, we had, nobody had experience with this. Nobody really knew what to do. But because music is part of what's considered compulsory education at the elementary level, elementary music educators had to start swimming first because they really didn't have a choice. And then what was happening is often students were counseled away from performing ensembles once they got into middle school and high school. I know when I got ready to do my dissertation, I wanted to do it with middle school band. And one of my dissertation members said, oh, well, they usually self-select themselves out by middle school. That's not true. Um, The first thing you have to do is you have to go fetch kids with disabilities. And they don't feel like, oh, they're here. No, I'm going to go get them. So you go to the to the classrooms and you say, hey, you may have not gotten this flyer because people may have not thought about this, but I would love to have your students in my group. By the time kids get to the end of elementary school, their parents have heard, no, not yet. It's not for you. We don't have you know, the personnel. We don't have the funding. So many times that they would just throw away that flyer for band, choir, or orchestra. So I think you have to tell them that you want them there. <laughs> There's this entire underground of conversations between parents of kids who have disabilities. They know. They know what teachers want their kids, what teachers will do well with them, and what teachers will just cause more trauma to their children. So I think the first thing is having that philosophy. I mean, it's basically, yeah, 90% philosophy and 10% 
tricks and strategies. It's just, no, yeah, I want, this is the kind of band I want. And then thinking about looking, well, looking at the accommodations list of the IEP, right? It gives you an idea of where that student is in their reading, writing kind of math skills, and then what they can do, what they're working on. So if that student, for example, you look at an IEP and it says they're working on um, noun verb agreement, Okay, something like that. They're working on being able to do that. So when I'm thinking about a student and reading music and now on verb agreement, I'm thinking, okay, is that student going to be able to remember their key signature? Are they going to be able to notice those accidentals when they come along? The differences, things that happen in a musical sense, and then be able to kind of highlight for them, color code, make those notes larger, um, slow down the pacing, right? By adapting the part, having them only playing the notes that you know they know how to play, and then slowly adding other notes. In a choir situation, highlighting their specific part, not asking them to learn all the verses. Maybe they know the chorus, but those verses, they get really tricky and they keep changing, right? So having them do something else that's musically meaningful during the verses, in orchestra, having them spend a longer amount of time on open strings, so giving them a part that has open strings or just working on one string or one finger. So just kind of, you know, just modifying it that way so that they're included. But honestly, the biggest thing is just deciding that you want this, that you really, every kid means every kid. And what about students maybe in high school who have had no training in band or orchestra at all. Maybe the middle school teacher wasn't super into that or being accommodating or the program they were in, it wasn't possible. And they come to it for the very first time. And I would say any suggestions you have here are going to be useful for students without special needs too, who maybe want to join band or orchestra in 11th grade or, or 10th grade. Any special considerations there if they just have no background and then we're throwing them in with these students who have been playing for five or six years? Fabulous question. Yeah, I think it's a point of privilege for people to think that everybody's ready to begin instrumental ensemble instruction in fifth grade or sixth grade. Not everybody is. And you're absolutely right, Steve. That was great to say, not just people with disabilities, right? Not every kid is financially ready. Not everybody's household is ready to do that. Not everybody's developmentally ready to do that. So in having a spot for a kid to begin music instruction anytime that they're in K-12 instruction is really important. So having that band, having that choir that's like a y'all come, you know, everybody can, you know, come and be in this, I think is really important. Or having like beginning whatever, and then you start them at the beginning. It's of course more difficult in smaller schools where you don't have as many ensembles. In those cases, I really think starting with modifications of parts, right? Having them go through a beginning method book and at the same time plan your ensemble and just having their parts be the things that they know. Now that we've gotten so facile with, you know, technology, they could even, you know, be playing things out of the method book for us and sending it to us while at the same time sitting in band and playing the parts that way. Some of my colleagues have an adaptive music class that they teach. And in some ways, you were talking earlier about the severe room or the moderate room or, you know, having a separate room. And maybe that isn't such a good thing. What are your thoughts on this class that basically to the outsider looks like, okay, you're not like the other kids, so we're going to put you all together and this is what your music class is going to look like. How do you uh, reconcile that, make that a good experience? Is that even the right thing to be offering if a teacher is lucky enough to be able to have time in their schedule for that? Yeah, awesome. I absolutely think that there is a place that some students need to be in a classroom by themselves with other students 
who are more severely affected by their disabilities. I don't want to call the severe room. I'd rather have it called Mr. Shanley's room, right? So why do we have the teacher's name on the other rooms? And then this one is these other, it's just, it's so othering. <laughs> so I think it's great. And I love the adapted music classes. I think they're places where students can be themselves and can express what they want to learn and learn about music without having to keep up with performance pressures, right? With what's our next concert, with here's here's our rep, here's what we have to learn. They can learn at their own pace and they can learn more, what I consider to be kind of like real world things, right? Like what things does everybody need to know about music after they finish school, right? You need to know how to be a good audience member. You need to know like how you get tickets. You need to know how you behave at different kinds of music concerts. There's all kinds of musical behaviors that people need to know that can be learned in an adaptive music class. So our first and second year teachers are often struggling just to keep their heads above water with everything they're asked to know, everything they're asked to do. If they only remember one thing when it comes to exceptional learners in their music classroom, what do you want them to be thinking about that first year? Every child is different. Everyone, even the ones who don't have disabilities, they're all different. I personally believe that if two things were done in schools, we would eliminate a lot of what's happening. Every kid every day deserves to be supported, supported where they are, and they need teachers to understand, okay, this is where you are. This is what you know. That's fantastic. So let's try to go just a little bit further. Can you do that? And I'll be right here and I will help you. We'll be okay. Every kid should feel like that. Every one of us, Alan, Steve, all of us have left the classroom just feeling completely unsupported and having no idea where we're supposed to go from here, right? That's a very frustrating experience for students. At the same time, every day, every kid needs to be challenged. Nobody should go home from school and somebody says, what'd you learn in school today? And they say nothing, which we've experienced too. We've experienced days of real frustration where we don't feel any support. And we've experienced real frustration because we know all the things and we're not challenged. So I think for beginning teachers to know that every child is different and we need to make sure that we're supporting and challenging all of them, that's a great place to start. Are there any common mistakes you've seen that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet? I'm especially curious if there's some mistakes that come from well-intentioned teachers. They think they're maybe doing the right thing for the students, but maybe they aren't. Or really any common pitfall or people come to you and say, I don't know how to solve this question or that problem. Anything that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet? I have teachers ask me, they say, okay, will you come, come and watch me or let me send you a video. Let's see, you know, see what's going on. And there are all these discussions happening, right? With the special ed staff and the teachers and, and everything. And, and I will look at them and I'll say, did you ask the kid? Oh, you didn't ask them what will help you learn or to do what I think is the bravest thing a teacher can do. How can I be a better teacher for you? What can I do to help you learn better? Because we're giving power to the kid, which some teachers are afraid to do. I think it's awesome. You know, what can I do? What, how, can I, how can I help you do this? And I think we, we forget that the very simplest thing is to ask the student. They know. I think that the example you gave, that could very well be applied to the well-meaning teacher who we get in the exceptional person's training classes in college. It's talk to the special ed teacher, talk to the parents, and maybe the have you asked the student, that part doesn't get emphasized maybe quite as much. And I, I think that's a great reminder for all of our listeners. And I think as a result, we often do more than we need to for kids with disabilities. Um, because we try to pile all that and everything that all the people we asked advice from ask us to do. And so we just pile all these adaptations on top of kids without even asking them which ones they think would work. So that's why they often feel like school is done to them. 
instead of something they participate in. Isn't there also a boost to like their engagement and their self-esteem and the value that they feel because they feel seen and heard when you ask them, which of these accommodations do you actually need right now or what works for you? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Then they feel like they're a partner and then, yeah, then that helps them. They're all in, ready to go. Do we run into a problem when we ask Alan, hey, do you want this accommodation? And he says, no, I don't need it. But Alan's parents and the special education teacher say, no, Alan thinks he doesn't need that accommodation, but we want him to have that accommodation. Great question. Um, What I do in that case is I take some data to show whether or whether or not, you know, Alan really needs it. And I send that to the special education team. Being in contact with them is very helpful. So say, I see that this is listed and I'm legally to provide this. However, it is not currently working for Alan in my classroom. Here's data of, of how. Well, Alice Hamill, thank you for joining us to share your insight on all of these important topics today. Are you ready to close things down with the lightning round on some lighter topics? I guess so. Can I phone a friend? (laughs) You may phone a friend if you need to, but I don't think you'll need to. I think you'll be okay. Okay. Favorite place to eat in all of Virginia. You can include the D.C. area if you'd like. My current favorite place to eat is called Rappahannock, and it is a local seafood restaurant in Richmond. They do all these like really cool locally sourced food, farm to table. And I love oysters and they have really, really good oysters. So I would say Rappahannock in Richmond. Favorite children's book. I have a lot of favorites. I do have one. I love the uh, over in the meadow where the green grass grows, right? Over in the meadow, there's like a thousand different versions of it. I was teaching in a school um, that, well, the school was filled with children who had been asked to leave their regular public school. And I was the music teacher at this school. And they were having a very, a class was having a very difficult day. And there's a lot of fighting going on. And I wasn't able to teach. I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? So I just sat on the chair and I started saying, over in the meadow where the green grass grows, live the old. And then slowly, and by the time I was doing the song, the whole class was just sitting there, just listening to the book. So I love books that I can sing. And I love over in the meadow. A piece of music, composer, or performer that you wish more people knew about? So my daughter is the principal flute for the Detroit Symphony, Mom Bragg. Um, And two months ago, they premiered a brand new piece by a composer named Jeff Scott. Jeff Scott used to be the hornist for the Imani Winds. He now teaches horn at Oberlin. And she knew his music because he'd written this great woodwind quintet called Starting Something which was really good. And so then the Detroit Symphony asked him to write this piece. It's it's for woodwind quintet and orchestra, and it's called Paradise Valley Serenade. And I love what Jeff did with it because it took the whole history of the orchestra hall in Detroit and everything that happened and what that hall was used for because it's it's been part of a jazz move, civil rights, everything else, and wrote this amazing piece. And of course, now Detroit's the only orchestra that has played it. But I think it's an amazing piece of work, and I think Jeff Scott's brilliant. Can you give us a book recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with music? So there's a book. It's called Five Miles Apart, A World Away. I think that's it. It's really interesting. It's about Richmond and the schools here. And there's a school called Freeman that's in a county. And then there's a school called TJ that's in the city. And how two high schools that are only five miles away from each other are so different and kind of goes into what happened when people started leaving the cities for the counties and funding and, you know, stereotypes and biases. It's a really fascinating book. And if you were not a musician or a teacher, what career do you think you would have had? 
Oh, gosh. I would say criminal defense attorney. I can see that. I like helping people. That would have been fun. I would miss the music, though. But yeah, criminal defense attorney. Very good. Well, Alice Hamill, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. You guys are so fun. We really are. I love this. (laughs) This is great. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website and let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list new episodes drop every two weeks on monday mornings get current stay relevant music ed insights